Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as I am each and every Friday, by my dear friend, its senior TechCrunch reporter on the FinTech Beat, it's Marianne Azevedo. And Marianne, there has been no news from TechCrunch this week, not at all. Nothing has happened. Such a quiet, uneventful week here at TechCrunch, Alex. I know. Wow. I mean, feet up, beach towel down, flip flops off. You know, I'm I'm just chilling. Put a little like umbrella in my drink. You know, I'm it's good. <laughs> I, I feel like we should say something though, because people are going to be like tuned in and thinking like, you yes, know. I agree. So what I wanted to say was Connie, who's now in charge of like all things TechCrunch, was on the show, was on Equity for a long time back in the day. Yes, that's right. For our listeners who aren't aware, Connie Loizos, who was I think her previous title of Silicon Valley editor is now going to be TechCrunch's editor-in-chief and general manager. Her Strictly VC newsletter has been acquired by TechCrunch. So exciting times here. Lots of change, exciting changes. And I think this is just equity ascendancy because now both people at TechCrunch who have an editor-in-chief title are either active equity people, me, or equity alums, Connie. That's right. Take it over. It took Love six it. and a half years. <laughs> it's, wow. it's the long game, Marion. Has it been that long, Alex? Amazing. Six and a half years. I think we started like March of 20. No, no. I'll do the math later on when I'm not on the show, but it's been a long time. So. At least six years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's at least six years. All right. On the show this week, in the deals of the week column, we have TeamShares and MoonPay. Then we're going to talk about rent-focused startups, kind of that blend of technology and the amazingly useful housing market. Then how the IPO drought was worse than you thought. And finally, AI and how it relates to the lean startup concept. Marianne, before though, we dive into the actual deals of the week. A little bird told me that Disrupt is two weeks away. Oh my gosh. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, it's it technically it starts on September 19th, last through the 21st. So it ends three weeks from today. If we want to be super exact, my children always tell me I'm too literal. Oh, no. I mean... I fly out on September 15th. So to so me, it's therefore like it's 15, two weeks away. Yeah, it's two yeah. weeks away. Like, <laughs> like I have to I have to start and complete my shopping for this trip like now or I won't have time. Same, so same. Yeah, that's coming up. And don't forget, everybody. Equity, of course, is starting off the whole show as always. And Marianne and I are going to arrive in themed costumes with a <laughs> Wild West motif. So if you want to see Marianne in a cowboy hat and spurs, be there early on day one. And of course, if you need a ticket, you can use the code equity, save money, blah, blah, blah. All right, Marianne, let's dig into this. So your deal of the week is one that I'm completely entranced with because it is a start model like I have never seen before. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, same. This was this is a company called TeamShares. And speaking of Connie, Connie wrote this article. And it's a very different model, kind of complicated one. But let's talk through it. So this company has raised $245 million in venture capital from investors like QED, Spark Capital, Union Square, Kosla, Inspired. And so what they do is they buy small businesses like mom and pop businesses from owners who are planning to retire. And then they they put in a new president, give the owner some stock in this new company. I think it's 10%, Alex, if, mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm right. Yeah. And then they, they work to grow the business and they do it with the goal of not selling it, you know, not trying to like flip it. And they don't want to aggregate like we saw all those e-commerce aggregators trying to do in 2021, which, you know, whole other topic. They really, they want to buy them. They want to hold on to them and they want them to make money and eventually have employees own about 80% of the company, which is an intriguing model. So they also, this is where 
you have that little emoji with the head exploding, brain exploding, trying oh, to yeah, understand yeah, yeah. all the, this. The, yeah. So they, they consider themselves a fintech because they've started a neo bank and they're going to launch credit cards, building an insurance business. So they're they're wanting to sell these financial products that they're creating to replace the vendors that all these companies used to use. Just to be clear, this is a venture-backed company that buys other companies, because a lot of SMBs don't have a clear succession strategy, right, Marianne? So right. often someone is, is is retiring, doesn't have someone to hand it off to, like a family member. They buy those companies. They then install a president, give out some equity in the business. And then over time, they're going to replace the vendors with their own software solutions. So it's, it's kind of like an SMB private equity effort sans flipping with a fintech twist from a platform perspective. My question is, in 10 years, you know, will TeamShares be a company that makes the most of its money from businesses it owns or from the financial services it has built that it has rolled out to the companies themselves? But if they do decide to end up letting employees earn the majority of equity in the SMBs, I don't know how they kind of keep vendor lock-in. Yeah, I did have a few questions. I mean, I feel like, okay, if if eventually employees are going to own 80% of the company, like how much does that leave for team shares to be making? You know what I mean? I think if I understood this correctly, I, I read through Connie's interview with, with the CEO, so I'm mm-hmm. pulling from memory here. Mm-hmm. But I think the idea is give ownership probably for your vesting, probably standard in that way, to the president and then allow the employees to buy stock as time goes along. Mm-hmm. So essentially it allows employee employees to own more of the shares as a team, hence team shares. But I don't think that'll be quick or always happen. And I wonder if the real play here is to build a, an enormous kind of fintech stack. You know, like you mentioned credit cards, insurance, neobanking, which are kind of profitable on their own, I guess, but maybe in aggregate or more so. Yeah. I mean, I think I have to wonder, are they going to say, are they going to mandate? Do these businesses have to use their financial products? Or what? I mean, well, while they own 90%, right, they can just say, you're going to use this because they're fully in charge. But there's that 51, 49% moment that might happen. So it essentially demands that what they have in place is sufficiently strong and cost efficient for the SMBs they own later on to stick with it. Here's what I like, though. Lots of questions here. Lots of things that looks like they could go right or wrong. I love a bet. Here's a real wager. Here's a model that I've never heard of before. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of micro PE non-rollups fintech platform plays. Like, <laughs> this, like, like what the hell? But I dig that. I love something new and they have a lot of capital. And critically, they have money from Union Square Ventures, the only venture capital fund in the world. When they invest in something, I go, okay, fine. I'll pay attention because I think they're that good. So, yeah, it is an interesting model. I mean, and they and they look for businesses that are on average about 30 years old. I mean, we're not we're not talking about like, startups at all, you know? Oh, no. Yeah. Like older businesses, different categories, manufacturing, restaurants, retail, consumer services, and annual revenue is about between 2 million and 10 million. So I I do like that they they recognize the value of these smaller businesses. And they're like, hey, you know, they, they do have value just because they're not making 20 million, 30 million in revenue doesn't mean they're not valuable and can grow. So I I do really like that as well. And and it'll be fun to see where this company goes over time. Yeah. I just, I mean, how much money would I pay to have a look at their books? Yeah. You know, I'm so curious, like, like a a burning flame. If you play Baldur's (laughs) Gate three, I feel like Carlock right now. And if you don't get that joke, buy better video games. (laughs) All right, moving on. MoonPay. So MoonPay is a company that I've heard lots about Never really looked into much, but according to reporting from Jacqueline Melanick from the Chain Reaction Podcast and TechCrunch Plus, if I can be so bold, 
They are going to invest in Web3 infra, gaming, and fintech. Marianne, how surprised are you to see a new venture capital-focused fund for Web3 in 2023? It is a little surprising, refreshing. You know, I had to learn about MoonPay. So they build payment infrastructure for crypto. I think it's interesting that they're looking to back not just Web3, but gaming companies and fintechs in adjacent categories as well. Yeah, it's interesting, but there is a lot of optimism that we will see a greater crossover between Web3 and gaming amongst certain people. So to mm-hmm. me, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And also, Marianne, as we talked about on the show before, crypto is a subsector to fintech itself. Right. So I can kind of see why those three are the areas of focus. And just for the folks out there who are interested, they're going to write checks between 100K and a million dollars seed through Series A. So not leading is my read here. They're just going to be participatory investors in these rounds, probably, because a million dollars into an A is not going to get you you know, the the first chair. Right. But it's interesting. They've already invested in 25 companies. And I don't know how to vet these names, but I'll just list off a couple of them for folks out there who are in the crypto world. BCB Group, Beat Club, Absolute Labs, all lowercase, Create OS and Bridge Tower. So, you know, I like this because again, it took me by surprise. Yeah. I didn't think we were going to see this. It's a timing where we're not seeing a lot of folks try to put more money into Web3 than they did before. And so I like it. And also as a historical factoid, I was trying to figure out how big is MoonPay? It's always a little tough to track down private company revenue data, but I did find some reporting that said that the company was on pace to do $150 million in net revenue in 2021. Mm. However, that was the crypto peak. So the number could be smaller these days, but does show that it's a company of of real heft. Well, I mean, Jacqueline said that it's valued at 3.4 billion, has more than 5 million customers and supports over 80 assets. So no no small outfit here. Well, TechRunch.com raised at a $45 billion valuation back in 2021 as well. So, you know, I mean, let's, we're not worth that now. I mean, I'm making a joke, but like, you know what I mean? I, I don't trust prior fintech valuations that have not been repriced in the last six months, right? Oh, I know that all too well. But, but yeah, I think this is encouraging news. And then, you know, combined with yesterday, we saw a big surge in Bitcoin. So it feels like it's the first time I've, I've been hearing some like positive stuff in this space in a little while, which is, that's good. Wow, you just blew my mind. Next thing, you're, you're going to be in like a self-driving car listening to heavy metal. <laughs> What's going on? Who is this Marianne? All right, listen, we have to take a very short break. When we get back, we're talking about Rent Butter and also a startup called Kiki. Right back after this. All right, Marianne, a couple stories here about the rent space. I'm fascinated. Talk us through them. Yeah, I mean, I think stories about the rental space tend to perform pretty well. People are really interested in it, and it's it's not very common to find new models. So we had a couple stories this week that had new ways to attack rentals. So Rent Butter, which I wrote about, I really love the premise behind this company. So how many of us, we've we've all made mistakes, right? Very often, you know, you can kind of move on from your mistakes and not have to pay for them for years and years and years or forever. But when it comes to things like rent, it's not not really the case. So say you miss a rent payment or a couple of rent payments or you get behind and impacts your credit score. Well, that stuff's on your record for a very long time. And if you get evicted, then that's on your record for a very long time. And it makes it so much harder to be able to rent in the future. So Rent Butter really wants to make applying for a rental not just based on your credit score, which we've long talked about as an old-fashioned, antiquated way of, of deciding if people are credit worthy. 
and they want to take a look at, okay, say maybe someone did miss a payment or got evicted a couple of years ago because they fell on hard times or they got sick and couldn't, couldn't pay their bills. They don't have to pay for that forever. Rent Better will connect to an applicant's bank account. So leasing teams have access to other data than just their credit score. They can see their banking account information. They can see that they're making money. They've been at the same job for years and not just getting two paycheck stubs from the past two months. They can see that they've made rent payments on time for the past two or three years, things like that, really analyze their their credit and spending behavior. And that way, they're, they're saying they can reduce fraud, risk and turnover for landlords and open up the pool for these people who who really want to move on and, and better their lives and not have to worry about being able to get apartments or, or be able to rent a single family home if they have children, for example. Okay, so a few things about this. One, I prepped for this section. I read the story, looked at the company, and I said rent better every single time in my head. (laughs) And then when I was trying to introduce this, I realized it was butter. Rent butter. Not quite as good of a name, but you gotta gotta buy a .com somewhere, so I feel that. All right. The other thing is, I just made a connection because when you're talking about them looking at bank accounts and actually the hard kind of like financial data of a person versus a a score generated by third-party calculations, it feels a lot like Brex because they would would say, hey, you know, we do a, a scan of these companies' checking accounts all the time, so we know how much cash they have, right? So that's how we can afford to upper, lower their credit limits based on the visibility we have because we have on the ground data. It's like applying the Brex credit model to consumers, which actually, frankly, now that we're saying it out loud, it makes a lot of sense to me. I like it. Yeah, it does make a lot of sense. And I hadn't thought of that analogy. That's a good good analogy, Alex. Yeah, and I think that the background of the founders is really interesting. The, the two founders used to work at a large REIT. One of them was an attorney. The other built the tech stack. And the attorney was actually like having to go to court and dealing with these people who weren't paying rent. And he said he felt like he ended up being more of a mediator and working with them to try to like set up payment plans. And then he was, you know, light bulb went off in his head and was like, gosh, we need something to help address this. You know, it doesn't have to be this way. So I thought, you know, they feel, they seem like they're really passionate about what they're doing. I mean, obviously they see business opportunity, but I could feel like they really do want to try to help people. And I think that's great. Yeah. And they just raised $3 million led by RET Ventures ESG Fund. So shout out to them. And then the other company that we were looking at in the kind of consumer rental space is Kiki. And they call it a community-led marketplace. It's it's a mix of things, but the, the gist of it seems to be, Marianne, that if you're going to leave your apartment or single family home, I presume, for any period of time in the months, not the weeks, Kiki will help you find someone who can live there while you're away. Therefore, they'll cover your portion of the rent. So you're not just paying to have a house sit there empty. Mm -hmm. And the argument seems to be that this doesn't take away housing stock from the market like some people say Airbnb does, Mm -hmm. but instead actually helps increase density. And therefore, it's not as rent driving as some other things might be. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I think this model was interesting because if you look at the pictures in the article, it, it does work very similarly to like a dating app because they're trying to match listers and renters that have like similar personalities or likes and preferences and, and things like that. It's an invite only model. They can only communicate via Instagram. That really struck me. I don't have any Instagram followers. <laughs> I only follow three people on Instagram. I don't know. Like maybe that's great for the target demo. Right. It, it definitely made me feel out of touch. Yeah, I feel like it is a little limiting, you know, from that perspective. But to be clear, I think this originated out of like Australia, right? Australia and New Zealand. And now they're kind of sunsetting those markets, which I thought also is 
I wasn't sure about that because if they've seen success there, why are they wanting to sunset? But they're now like focusing on the New York city market. I do like very much this idea of, okay, there is empty space rather than having it sit, let somebody else, you know, sublet it and let's help match these people together. Like I do like the premise behind it. Um, but I do, I feel like it could be a little limiting if you're just focusing on people who have Instagram profiles and it said that had selfies on those. I mean, I'm not going to post a selfie of myself, you know, I said I slept to go down the wrong road here. Marianne, (laughs) (laughs) we're not the target marketer. So maybe Instagram DMS is the place where people already feel comfortable that might use Kiki. And therefore what they're doing is letting people speak the language they already do. So what might appear to us to be an impediment might actually be a competitive advantage for their demo. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously their investors are pretty impressive bunch. They've raised $6 million on a seed round led by Blackbird Ventures. Yeah. But other investors include a former Airbnb exec, Facebook marketplace founder, Bowen Pan, who said that he saw some similarities like because with rentals on Facebook marketplace, like that there was a need for this sort of thing. So, you know, I think it's definitely potential here. And I, I do like the premise. And they want to enter like other markets, to, to be clear, not just New York City. Eventually, they want to hit uh, like top 10 large markets in the U.S. I'd love to see if this takes off. Yeah. And Kiki takes 10% of the rent price per listing. So, you know, if you're going to rent out a space for six months, you can see it's a pretty serious revenue chunk. And they have ideas for how to keep it safe. You know, friend of friend recommendations, using your real profile, ergo Instagram. So I honestly hope this goes well because it seems to be a pretty good way to plug a, a current market inefficiency mm-hmm. with a bit of technology and some smart thinking. And also, it's not like the New York City housing market is famous for being lovely. So anything they can do to make it a little bit more efficient might help. Mm-hmm. I'm just not in the age in which I'm uh, moving and renting. So it makes me feel a little old, to be honest. That's okay. A lot yeah. of things A lot of things we're going to talk about might make us feel a little old. But like you said, there's there's a large target market here. And, and, and for the people who are subletting, it can be really helpful because, you know, rather than losing thousands and thousands of dollars paying rent for empty space, you can sublet and recoup some of that. So I think there's, there could be a lot of positive aspects to making this work. I should have traveled more before my life got serious. Right. Because now I can't do anything. I try to tell that to all my friends who are childless, like go everywhere you can while you can do it, do it, do it. Yeah. All right. Off of that tangent, Marianne, next up is uh, the IPO drought. And we have talked about this a lot. We talked about uh, the recent IPO filings on the Monday show. And I wanted to go back and get a bit more data on the historical context because it felt like we hadn't seen a real venture-backed tech IPO for some time. But I didn't really realize that it had essentially been since January of 2021, discounting SPACs because I don't count them, since we've really had a debut. And that was, you know, more than a year and a half ago. And I was just kind of shocked at how fast we became inured to no IPOs. Do you mean 2022, I think? Yes, 2022. Well, honestly, Alex, until I read this story, I didn't realize it either. I mean, like we knew that there'd been this drought. We knew that we weren't seeing IPOs for a very, very long time. But I didn't realize just how few there were and that there was only one in the tech space. Yeah. That's sobering, actually. It's kind of kind of scary. Incredibly so. And this all came about because we were looking at a, a crunch-based data set that tracked billion-dollar exits in the American market. And just to be clear, adding some more context, we're talking about companies going public on the American stock exchanges. Yes, that is a, a U.S. focus, but the U.S. capital markets are 
the most liquid in the world, I would say. And also it's where there's the most startup investments. So they are the most important for this particular factor. So yes, we are excluding certain areas, but we are focusing on the largest single chunk. So please don't get too mad for our American centricity. But according to this crunch-based data, billion dollar exits have gone from, you know, so frequent they were almost daily to essentially completely entirely gone. So in Q3 of 2021, there were 71 billion dollar exits in the US. And then that fell to 19 by Q1 of 2022, 17 through the rest of 2022. And total for this year is uh, 13. 15 if you count our new ones that haven't yet gone public, right? Instacart. It's going to go up to 15. Absolutely. But I mean, think about $71 billion exits in one quarter of 2021 to 15 for all of this year, inclusive of the deals that haven't yet finished. Right. I mean, it's that's nuts. It's crazy. I, I was surprised. I was surprised by just how few we've seen. I was surprised by how few that were in the actual tech space. I wasn't really sure what to make of this, Alex. You know, if you just look at these numbers on paper, you're like, this does not speak well for the tech sector. It's not the tech sector that I'm concerned about because a lot of the companies that didn't exit are doing fine. As we saw from the Clavio filing, never thought about them, knew about them, it didn't care. Now I care a lot. And they were pretty quiet while they were doing well. So I presume that there's more of that out there. And far be it from me to worry about our friends over in the venture capital world, but they're the ones who I think are actually getting squeezed here because mm -hmm. they haven't been able to generate cash returns for their investors, their LPs, right. at anything like the level that they need to given the fund sizes they've raised and deployed. And so they're probably having to go to their quarterly LP meetings and be like, ha, 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 ha. Uh, guess what guys, no money for you. Yeah. And that kind of pressure trickles down, you know, right? Because then, then they're going to be obviously a lot more cautious in investing in the future, whether it be in new companies or in follow-on rounds, because they have yet to show returns for some of their previous investments. So that makes it harder for startups to raise capital. So it's like a, a cycle here. It's a vicious cycle, mm -hmm. but like, you're right. It's harder to make a capital call when you've already called down a billion dollars of a fund and returned no money. I would be a little peevish if I was an LP, mm -hmm. you know, in general, that would make me a little bit cautious. But it's interesting that that's where you went with that, because I was thinking you were going to say pressure from the VCs was going to trickle down to founders to get them to go public, for example, or to find another exit. And that's why my hypothesis is today, if we do see these two IPOs do well, Instacart and, and Clavio, not even as well as we saw from Audity and Cava earlier this year, just like medium good. Mm -hmm. I wonder if that's going to lead to a lot of venture capitalists kicking some portfolio companies straight in the small of the back out of the private markets and onto the public ones. Yeah, I think it will help. I really do. I think there's been a lot of fear. And now that we've had a couple of companies say, okay, we're going to do it. They sort of kind of, what is it? Broke the ice, IPO ice and, and said, well, if we can do it, then others can, you know, and it just sort of snowballs from there. So I optimistically think this does mean that we, we may be turning a corner. We might start seeing more IPOs, especially like you said, there are companies that are actually doing well, that quietly doing well, that are probably good IPO candidates, unlike the many who decided to go public via SPAC and are now tanking in terms of, of performance on the stock market. I think past tense is sufficient there, Mary, and they tanked. <laughs> tanked. I don't, I don't, can you tank more when you've already tanked 95%. I mean, yes, you can still fall another 95%, but at that point, it's a couple of cents a share. So who cares? Though with the IPO ice comment, I'm now stuck thinking about like specialty cocktails to represent different elements of the venture capital world. So <laughs> right now I would say the venture capital cocktail du jour should just be a cup of ice because all their liquidity is frozen, but I'm... 
Oh, that's a, just, that took me a just minute. Me? That took me okay. a minute, but it was a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> and then I think, I think FinTech would be one of those flaming shots that you don't know how to take. So you just get burned the whole time. <laughs> and then crypto is just Diet Coke with no rum because oh it doesn't quite God. live up to expectations. How do you come up with this stuff off the top of your head? I love it. I drink a lot of coffee before the show, Marianne. Uh, okay, that's, yeah. that's it. I, that's my trick. I just, I just power through it. And then the moment we stop recording, I just collapse into a little ball. Other stuff to keep an eye on from the IPO market. Of course, we will bring you guys notes from the initial pricing and final pricing of those two IPOs and any new filings that come around. But, and this did catch my eye, the Chinese government has greenlit Zeker and WeRide to kind of get closer to going public in the United States. We're not going to get into the history of Chinese companies going public in the U.S., but I was surprised by this. Mm-hmm. And I do think it is representative of China wanting to increase essentially capital investments into its companies. And by bringing those two firms to the American markets, possibly, Marianne, that is one way to get some capital injection cross-border during a fractious mm-hmm. uh, geopolitical moment. So I, I would say positive. It feels kind yeah. of bullish, like, you know, friendly almost. Right. Yeah. Same thoughts there. All right. Now, moving on towards our final theme, lean startup. Marianne, do you remember when everyone was just talking about how startups should be built in this lean startup format? It was a it was a thing for, for a couple of years. A long time ago, right? Yeah. Yeah. This was, <laughs> I mean, I read the book Lean Startup, I think it's called, because this was like the ethos back in the day. And mm-hmm. the, the idea was you can build digital products pretty inexpensively and quickly. So build something, put it out, and then iterate like bad and make something that's, you know, that people want. And you'll learn that by testing often and making tweaks frequently. And it was cool. And then we left that behind and kind of went to the... The bloated startup phase. Thank you. That's better than what I had in mind. Bloated startup phase. I just pictured a person standing there with their stomach, like kind of distended, bloated startup. Is that that because they've been overfed or is that because they're full of hot air? I mean, a, a little bit of everything, right? Like overfed, too much capital, too much hiring, too much arrogance, just all of it. It was like the exact yeah. opposite of the lean startup phase. Yeah. Which is not, which is actually very non-egotistical because mm-hmm. you're not saying you know what to build. You're saying you're going to go out there and quickly learn from the market and then apply it back. Anyways, essentially lean startup is a way to build something with less capital and faster velocity. We did see kind of the opposite of that through 2020, 2021, I would mm-hmm. say almost in 22 in some ways. Anyways, our dear friend Haya from the TechCrunch and TechCrunch Plus team talked to Steve Blank, who was part of the kind of lean startup movement and brought in the idea of AI and how AI will impact startups that want to approach the world in a more lean startup approach. So Marianne, first of all, impressions from you. What did you think of the argument that they made about how AI might fit into lean startups? You know, I've kept my skeptical hat during this whole AI hype phase. Not that I don't think it's revolutionary in many ways and not that I don't think it's it's here to stay because I do, but I've also been skeptical on just what kind of applications it will really be valuable, that sort of thing. So I do think there was merit to to this idea of this lean methodology and how you could use AI to generate minimum viable products with images and websites to run A-B testing and things like that. And so you could save a lot of time, like what would take, I don't know, months maybe could be condensed sure. into hours. Mm-hmm. And one way that people would, or used to think about the market is they would put up like a fake landing page and then let people like drop their email address in. And then if a lot of people signed up, they would go build the thing that they were talking about, which I mean, to me, slightly on the edge of, of ethics there, collecting yeah. email addresses through kind of deceitful methods. I I get being scrappy, but then there's also being deceitful. Mm -hmm. Anyways, if you can do that a hundred times over with AI and then you 
pick the best one. I kind of see how that sounds appealing, but to me, it feels almost non lean startupy, which is more like do a thing, learn from it versus like a shortcut way in a way. Is it is it a shortcut way? It, it almost sounds like you're going to have so many experiments running, so much data, you're going to flood your own zone and end up kind of perplexed. So to me, that didn't seem super exciting. But what did though was Steve Blink's point about how much venture capital money is going into startups that are working with generative AI today. Mm-hmm. He called it quote dumb money. So if you don't like that, tell him, not me. But he says there's probably 10,000 experiments being run with capital and there's a lot of stuff being thrown at the wall to see what sticks. And I think that's actually a a kind of fine way to think about the current way of startups because they're all trying stuff with AI and some will do well. And I guess we'll find out like what the correct approach is to use generative AI with these companies. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but it still feels a little unfocused for a lean startup methodology, but I don't hate the sentiment there. I guess it's slightly optimistic. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's mixed feelings, right? I still, I think anything that kind of promotes a more lean mentality in running a company is, can be a positive thing as long as it's ethical, right? As long as you're still doing things ethically. I mean, Another thing in a little off topic, I was fascinated by this article mentioning how AI could even be used to help tell if you could potentially get Parkinson's, for example, by, you know, looking at your eyes and things like that. So honestly, I had never thought of AI being used in that way. And it it made me warm up to it a little bit more, if that makes sense. AI tools... When I, I'm not going to get into the ML versus AI debate on the show because I don't think I would actually be useful there. I think I would actually make a mess of it. We have seen machine learning applications to the medical field, looking at tumors and so forth as a great way to help doctors do better. But you're right. This did feel different in that it was something that it could pick up, but other people could not. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a de novo application of AI. But in the startup sense, to me, it's more the generative AI, which I think is probably distinct from the mm-hmm. Parkinson's eye catching thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, some public company CEOs, some founders, some VCs about this stuff. And I guess I'm waiting for my life to change when it comes to generative AI, because I can go out and find it. Mm-hmm. I can go out and use it. But currently... I don't in my in my day-to-day work. Right. And I don't know if I just have a weird workflow, Marianne, or it's just not quite ready for prime time. Yeah. I, and I think we're going to see a lot of money thrown into this space with only a very small percentage of it going towards something that really becomes big, useful, helpful. So we're going to see. I mean, we all know that there's a lot of hype right now around AI. We know that there, this is the space. I thought this was an interesting way to look at its potential to, to keep us in that lean mindset. But I still keep my skeptic hat in terms of how it's all going to play out. Yeah. The thing that I'll say is everyone in tech is looking for that next platform, which is another way of saying kind of the next growth opportunity inside of tech. And it wasn't a number of other things that were kind of occasionally put on that pedestal as a trial. <clears throat> Fintech. Sorry, Marianne, who's who's coughing and saying fintech under their breath in the show? Oh my gosh. Chime, go public. Thank you. But when it comes to this stuff, I am curious to see where the hype meets the road for us. And I would like to do more, faster, easier. So I'm kind of waiting for someone to offer me the digital equivalent of a wrench, you know? Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be that Lex.page thing we talked about the other week. I don't know. I still write inside of the CMS. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe I need to get out of WordPress. <laughs> Maybe that's your problem, Alex. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen, everybody, we're going to leave it there. We are back, of course, next week. However, don't forget there is a holiday in the United States, and that means Equity Monday is actually going to be Equity Tuesday. 
So we will talk to you then. In the meantime, if you need more from us, we are, of course, Equity Pod on Twitter and Threads. And if you're coming to Disrupt and don't have a ticket yet, use the code Equity, all caps, to save some money and make us look good. Whew, Marianne, did I forget anything? I don't think so, no. But thanks to everybody for listening. As always, we hope to see you in a couple of weeks at Disrupt. I'm buying shoes. It's going to be fun. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.